This is my first one of these suckers. Um, yeah, I guess I'm getting to the point where uh, I've, I've got enough of a backlog that I'm actually going to start trying to grow it kind of thing. So if um, there's a couple a couple ways you can help out if you're interested. One is just honestly, like if you like a show or an episode, post it on social media. I know it's like a weird thing and everyone has like these clean feeds or they never like post anything, but like it would mean a lot and help the channel. Like that's how something like this grows is people sharing it to their social media and sharing it with friends and stuff um outside of that honestly if you really like like if you hear a quote that either i or the guest says in an episode um get it to me somehow either like tweet it at me or uh, or share it on facebook or message it email or something um so i can post it with a photo of the guest as like a social media post i'm not really good at social media I hate it uh, gonna outsource it as soon as i humanly can but yeah so thank you very much for listening. Love you guys a lot. Here's the show. I've got with me Todd Boyle. He's passionate about housing. And Eugene, how goes it, man? Hey, Tiger. Thanks for coming over. This is great. Uh, doing. I'm thriving. Uh, how's it going? Heck, it couldn't be better. So uh, I'm 67. I retired a couple of years ago. And uh, in Seattle, the cost of housing has had run away so, uh, so high that I was, I'm basically I've been displaced. You, you uh, were from up in Seattle? Yeah, I was living in Seattle uh, from uh, 1997 to um, until three years ago. Nice. And you think that's <laughs> happening here too? Oh, clearly. I can see the, the patterns here. It's very clear. And know. so the problem is that we can't spread out, but we also can't spread up, right? Isn't there like a, a, a limit on height and how far away the city can get? Oh, that's it. So there's an urban growth boundary under the uh, under state law that was developed over stages in the last century. And, uh, of course, within the urban growth boundary, there are restrictions against uh, density and infill of various types. And I think 70, 75% of the city is R1 residential lots. Yeah. So what are you pushing for? You want more uh, condos built in specific places just to house more people? Because if, if there's not housing but people want to move here, it's all going to get expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things about Oregonians, it's a joke that I've heard in, in uh, official circles, is that they can't stand sprawl. That's one thing they can't stand. And the other thing they can't stand is density. Yeah, it's true. Everyone wants to live. Everyone wants their own, like, couple acres far away from anyone else. That's mm-hmm. the dream, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the consequence, of course, is that the uh, uh, price of uh, houses and the, um, and the levels of rent uh, has gone up faster than incomes. Oh, yeah. Faster than inflation or anything else. And uh, so basically what's actually happening is that we've, uh, because housing is, is um, allocated on an auction system by whoever has money, mm-hmm. and then of course uh, the people who can't keep up with the rent increases are actually displaced. They have to either move out of town to someplace cheaper, or they have to double up, or, be, or go homeless. Yeah, that's a mess. And so the reason I care about this is that this creates a tremendous amount of stress on lower income people who uh, are skirting the edge of, of homelessness or displacement and uh, are unable or not participating uh, fully in the economy. And so what it does is this the stress just builds up year after year after year. And, of course, poverty is well known to be um, associated with and a causal factor in mental illness and yeah. addiction. And but it's a huge thing. I mean, just because I've been going downtown more and more lately, it is everywhere. You see these people who are homeless 
everywhere. What do you see as a solution to it? And I'm going to have some uh, some other people on the show actually pretty soon um, who are big advocates for solutions, but I'm curious what yours is. Well, yeah, and so the first we have to uh, define the problem, and uh, it's kind of bizarre to have see so many people uh, homeless and so many people displaced in an otherwise thriving and healthy economy where the reported GDP is going up and uh, everyone should be happy, when in fact there's a problem of concentration of wealth at the top, income and uh, assets at the top. And so there's kind of an unprecedented in our lifetimes um, uh, impoverishment of the, of the bottom 10%, what I call the first decile, the lowest 10% of incomes. And uh, so the problem is that there's a, uh, in, in Eugene, for example, 40,000 people are living on less than $1,000 a month. 40,000 people, and that is 20% of our uh, population in That's, Eugene. Yeah. And uh, that might have been okay 20 or 30 years ago when rents and costs of living were lower. But now it's a stretch. And so among, that, among those 40,000, 20,000 people, more or less, are living on less than $700 a month. And this try paying your rent on that. This doesn't count kids and like high school students, right? I think these are individual incomes. Uh, I'm not sure what household incomes are, but they track uh, with individual incomes. That's crazy. Yeah, we're in a weird place where, I mean, minimum wage is what everyone's trying to pay people, and then you can't really survive on that, so then everyone has multiple jobs, or they start being Uber Lyfts drivers and stuff. It's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the able and energetic and young scramble, and they... Um, they participate in the economy at their at capacity, and they get by as they always generally have gotten by. And also, there are a, a lot of people in these low-income brackets who are comfortable living simply, and don't really ha ask a lot, and they don't and undergo distress or stress or PTSD. Those particularly older, my friends, uh, my age are. I have many older friends who are living on less than seven hundred dollars a month. And they're not uh, undergoing mental breakdown because they've had a lifetime to adjust to uh, simple living and so forth. But what I am concerned about, I want to live in a happy society that doesn't have a lot of stress, crime, addiction, uh, runaway kids, broken families, kids dropping out of high school, where we have one of the lowest graduation rates in it's the country. It's a controversial take right there. You want to live in a society? I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I want to live in a more healthy society. Yeah. And uh, in a lot of ways, Eugene resembles Kentucky more than it resembles the uh, advanced countries of like uh, Scandinavia or, or East Asia or something. Because we uh, are terribly abusive on our uh, first decile uh, neighbors who, just because they don't have money, are subjected to, uh, to homelessness and displacement. So Absolutely. I mean, like this is just about money. If they had money, if they could lay down five hundred bucks on the table every every month, then they could be friends. They could be part of Eugene again, and everything would be fine, you know. But since they don't have money, oh my God, they're homeless. Arrest them. Chase them out of here. You can't be here. You can't camp in the parks. You can't camp on the sidewalks. It's illegal to be homeless. Well, I mean, there are cheaper places in the in the country to live. Like, wouldn't it, this be similar to me going to L.A. And just being like, well, I can't afford, what is it there, $1,500 a month? And then I would be forced to be homeless. And what that kind of is, it's like, all right, I just can't afford to live there right now. I should go live in Oregon. And if I can't afford it in Oregon, I could go to uh, Utah or somewhere else where it's even less expensive to live. Well, yeah, I don't have a problem with that, except that I want to live someplace where there's a lot of cool people, yeah. where everybody isn't just in a corporate job making money. And I think the money economy has uh, really some grave uh, uh, issues. And that's why I refused to participate in the money economy since 2003. I burned my CPA license and refused to work in the money economy. And namely, 
the uh, money economy, which is orchestrated out of New York and Washington, which controls all the basic laws of property and, and uh, money creation and allocation, that system wages war on countries one after another after another. And we've killed, uh, since World War II, more than 2 million people in the Korean War, more than 3 million, in, or at least 3 million in the Vietnamese War, so-called, Indochina, and then at least another million people in the Persian Gulf. And it's only a matter of time until the next major war, because not one thing has been reformed in this country. Not one thing has been reformed to prevent these wars. And now let's move on to climate change. A generation of young people are recognizing that the United States government is the engine of climate destruction. The United States government is uh, enforcing the rights of energy companies to produce and drill and frack the country and the, the rights of industrialists to burn as much hydrocarbon as they want. So that's the second reason. And then the third reason is the uh, concentration of wealth, which causes our breakdown of our, of our uh, communities. It causes uh, broken families, addiction, stress. But so what's your what's your solution for all this? Because this is a big problem that I have with a lot of people when they talk about climate change or any of these things. Everyone focuses on the problem and then they don't offer a solution. I don't think that actually helps the conversation at all. If anything, people just shut off. They're like, we all know the problem. We all know universally that those are problems. But what is what is even a step in the in the direction of a solution? I think that's the conversation that should be had. Sure. Glad you asked. Now, uh, regarding this problem of the of the uh, national government. The uh, truth is that there is no way out of the box with the 1787 property and money-based constitution, which is structured on the con concepts from the Middle Ages in, in England. Uh, and it, until it's abolished, then there's not going to be a terrific amount of change in either its war-making or the climate problem or the concentration of wealth. So the thing to do is talk about how what a new country would look like if we had if the when the country breaks up into regional countries what would a constitution you, you say when it does not if well nothing lasts forever it might be 500 years but uh, sooner yeah. or later the country will break up yeah. it'll be uh, california and then the whole rest of the country <laughs> well yeah there's books and books about this you know where, yeah. what would be the what would be the borders and there's the the problem of borders quote is yeah. uh, is a famous problem uh, but notwithstanding uh, I think that in, it's, there's a good prospect that over 20 or 30 years that um, uh, people in the United States might, on a nationwide basis, come to the uh, uh, some sort of agreement to break up the country and, and uh, have constitutional conventions in their regions to develop a better constitution, which any uh, college you know, law class could build a better constitution than the U.S., the 1787 constitution. You'd want a college law class to make it? You wouldn't want like a uh, the homogenous mix of everyone in the in the place to make oh, it. Oh, good heavens. It would have to be involved. It would have to involve well, all the... Uh, like have, uh, have you ever gone on Reddit? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like everything's based on like an upvote downvote system. So the it's like a meritocracy where the best laws who the most people like would vote for go to the top. That's how it should be made. Mm -hmm. Like it should literally be like everyone gets one upvote or downvote, you know? And like, okay, I don't want that law. That hurts me. Downvote it. But that law would help me upvote it. That would be a really good way to vote, you know. And Iceland famously had a constitution, had an internet-based constitutional process, and they developed a whole new constitution, crowdsourced constitution. Yeah. And so that stands as among you know thirty or forty, I don't know how many constitutions that have been written that are better than the 1787. But uh, really, this would be a um, consensus of the usual powerful individuals in the community. Uh, including the business community and including intellectuals and including spiritual leaders. Uh, you can't leave groups of people behind because if this process is perceived as a, having an agenda, mm -hmm. 
then it will be rejected by those who have an opposite agenda. Mm -hmm. So a constitutional um, process is different from uh, an election or any other uh, advocacy project. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing is that the Constitution everyone is trying to do leaves behind the people who are currently in power today. And those people obviously aren't just going to give up power and be like, oh, that sounds fine. We'll totally let that happen. I think what really needs to happen is like either to find a middle ground or to somehow be like, you're cool. You and your kids will be cool, but we just don't want this to continue forever. Can we please just move forward? I think that's the direction ahead. Oh, exactly. It would be uh, some sort of a long sunset period yeah. where people can reassor- uh, reorganize their and plan for when the transition will be. I mean, literally entire plants will uh, will um, will um, burn out their useful life of equipment and, and roofing and you don't maintain things that you're not going to use forever. Um, and so I think relatively nobody basically will be hurt by a, by a, uh, massive constitutional change, but it, it would take time mm-hmm. and there'll be this big phase in and maybe even be phased in by different, uh, different laws might phase in at different times, you know? Yeah. But anyway, that's, uh, that's, uh, not really what we need bigger problem here in eugene here in eugene what's the problem what's the solution the salute the problem is housing prices are going up too much and there's nowhere to live and there's homeless people and so the challenge here in eugene is how to house ten thousand people who are in literally in distress uh outside of the market system now trying to um have a system of of property you know occupancy and ownership not intermediated in money is a is a very problem, as they say in Japan. That's a very problem. <laughs> and so these people who are outside of the market will never have enough money because the um, the prices of housing are going up faster than their income or their assets. And while there is there is mobility in and out of this ten thousand people, some people are added because of life changes or or crises. But some people uh, succeed in getting a job and getting out of this. Uh, nevertheless. These 20,000 people in the first decile, that is a number that is fairly stable and actually growing, even though there's mobility. So I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about a class, a systematic class of people. They have to be, uh, there have to be a way for them to get housing for 300 a month or less. And that, if such housing exists, it has to be protected from being bought by other people with higher incomes and bid up to 400 to 500 a month. Don't they have this? Don't they have like Section 8 housing right now? Okay, there's public housing, and uh, that's not creating the numbers necessary. There's, oh. uh, but th- that's like the right thing, <coughs> just not the scale needed. It, it would be great if, the, if it could uh, achieve housing below 300 a month at the scale that's needed, which is around 10,000. And um, the uh, cost of public housing is about 250000 per unit. This is not a real efficient, uh, you know, uh, system for, for construction mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and availability of housing. Um, and so at that rate, a million dollars gets you four units. And so if you need 10,000 units, then how much is that? Four billion dollars, I guess. Oh, man. Uh, I don't and, know what it is. And you're for. only making 300 a month from each unit. That's not... And, yeah, there, this is not... Um, this is not compatible with the uh, market pricing of houses and rents. And so there has to be a separate system that's a non-money system that's outside of the economy, that's outside of the market. What would that even look like? What's a non-money system? I mean, just because it's outside my, and I assume, and most people's wheelhouses of like, I actually don't know what you'd even be talking about. Mm -hmm, Very good. So the uh, solution for generations has been to bolt on this big uh, extra, you um, you know, carburetor thing on the engine of the market 
and saying, okay, we know we've got all these people who are, you know, disabled and they're elderly and they're so forth and mothers without, you know, an income. And so we're going to construct public housing blocks and put them in these at cheaper prices. And that's a Section 8 voucher and all the public housing. Homes for Good, I think, has some thousands of units that they, um, that they manage, uh, one or two thousand, I can't remember the exact number, including apartment buildings and so on. But it's not enough. And it's been it's taken like two two or three generations for them to construct that many units, mm-hmm. and uh, we need we have a backlog of, of uh, what I'm going to say is like half of the first decile are in distress and they are on the conveyor belt to homelessness. You keep saying decile. Does that mean a percent? Decile is based on you know des is the Latin word for one Ten. tenth I think. Oh yeah. So the bottom decile is the first tenth of incomes. Okay. Cool. And uh, so <clears throat> a lot of them are okay. They might own the they might own the home. And have $700 of Social Security. And they might be hanging on. They might even have a tenant in their house or something, a roommate. But a good half of them are in distress. And uh, so these people, that's 10,000 people. And we're, the voters are not going um, to vote for uh, $4 billion. We're no, talking about a Just fifth. in Oregon. And, just in Eugene? Just in Oregon? Well, just in Eugene. Wow. Just in Eugene, there's 10,000 people who are a backlog of of uh, available So this isn't housing. scalable. I mean, if that's in one small city. Bingo. Public housing, uh, taxing the taxpayers to go and provide housing for the people who are left behind is not sustainable. Yeah. It's not going to work at scale. It hasn't been working at scale. And that's why you see so many homeless people. It's not working at scale. And so uh, since public housing isn't working, then uh, another possibility is to allow people to uh, build and occupy cheaper housing instead of making it illegal. Mm-hmm. So we have a comprehensive fabric of laws, not laws, but ordinances in Chapter 4 of the Eugene Code. It, it's the nuisance code and all these sorts of things. And uh, you cannot have a tent. You can't sleep on a sidewalk. You can't have a sleeping bag in your car. You know. I understand why you don't want people sleeping on sidewalks. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. If, you, if, you, if you had an office downtown or if you lived downtown, would you want someone to be sleeping outside your house? This is a thing. Like, that's a very real thing. Like, like I understand why someone wouldn't want, you know, or like, say you're like, okay, I got a big meeting. Someone's coming from New York to come here. And then there's like two homeless people sleeping right outside the door of your, your building that you're meeting them in. It's like, well, now there's two things. One is your private property rights to your tenant, to your premises. And then the other thing, which is uh, uh, an assumption we must challenge is that the owner of property should have some say in what's going on outside of his, uh, outside of his property. Mm-hmm. And uh, that assumption has to go because that's the, uh, that's the prevalent assumption in Eugene that allows NIMBYs, not in my backyard, to prevent someone from building an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, in the next door neighbor's yard. Yeah. Now, why does my owning, already owning an excessive amount of property rights on a 7,000 square foot lot here, why does that give me even more rights to say what other people can do in their other lots all around here? Do you want to know a super relevant thing that's happened with two, two, um, two of my friends' parents actually got in this kind of uh, thing has been going on for years now where they live on a res- like I think it is zone for uh, the co-op housing to be built, but it's on a, it's on a road. And they want like 27 people or some crazy amount to live there. And it's like, there's just not enough parking and there'd be so much traffic and they have kids and stuff. So I understand like if you have a house, 
you when you bought the house you said okay this is a place where i can raise my family and now there's going to be 30 more cars coming coming and going with all these like you know like that that is kind of not what you signed up for and it's like okay i'll sell my house but now it's worth significantly less because of the the situation that it's in you know so it is kind of a weird thing where it's like well everyone signed up for Everyone likes uh, peace and quiet, and they have uh, uh, ex- expansive property rights. And for example, I live in this house here, and uh, this morning I had uh, loud uh, gas-powered leaf blowers for a half an hour right next door, less than less than thirty feet from where I uh, sleep here. And uh, I had uh, I found uh, dog feces in my yard from neighbors' dogs that come over and use my yard, and. Um, there's a continuous roar of traffic from uh, other human beings driving up and down 30th over here. Um, and so, uh, but this has to be balanced against the fact, this is a fact, that other human beings live and uh, here in our city and in our, on this earth who don't have land at all and don't have any privileges at all. And my privileges are derived by the fact that I had money. Now let's examine why I might have money and why my neighbors have money. And uh, if you actually go and look at the uh, structure of the U.S. economy, it's not fair. It totally isn't fair. Uh, there are people who work their hearts out, and they don't end up having enough money to ever own a home. Less than half of Eugene owns a home. It's just amazing. We have one of the lowest home ownership rates in the country, as far as I know. Nationally, it's like 63% of Americans own their homes. And here in Eugene, it's less than half because of the uh, impossibility of uh, keeping up with speculative land prices. But see, I would fall into that 40% because I don't ever want to own a home. I think I will just rent for the rest of my life because that's a responsibility that I don't necessarily want. And I think people who rent homes are doing something like it's like if you're renting a property, like you have to upkeep all this stuff and you have, you know, it's a lot. I don't know. Like, do you think everyone should just own a home? Well, it's not a matter of should. I think they would be wise considering historical um, consequences of not owning a home when you reach older uh, your older years. Mm, yeah. Because rents do continue to gallop and your uh, pension and, and your assets will be a lot less than they are when you're in your peak earning years. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> whether you rent or own, there's really no economic uh, escape from the fact that um, buildings require maintenance. Like, it's yeah. it's a nuisance. I've got, the, one of the, I've got this 1947 house that was listed as a teardown uh, and it was had one of the worst uh, uh, deferred maintenance uh, care cases that my realtor had ever seen. It hadn't literally been maintained at all for 30 years and the, oh, the walls were rotting into the earth. There was open holes in the walls where the wind blows through. That's how bad it was. Oh man, it's a pretty nice place now. Well, I had to, uh, you know, prop it up and put yeah. some put some walls in. Holy cow. So this is an example of uh, a response that's uh, cheap housing, which was just barely legal mm-hmm. because my neighbors complained and they said that they wanted me to tear it down because it was so lousy that it was, it was, uh, dropping reducing, their property, dropping line. their property prices. Yeah. But I was able to get a, um, a permit to convert this garage. We are having this interview in a converted garage. Yeah. And Conversation. I, yeah. Um, but I mean, you, you do understand their argument or they like where they're coming from, right? They're like, if you had like a nice, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm saying I'm like propping it up as a valid argument. If like you buy a place and you're like, all right, cool. Everyone on my entire lane has like a nice, pretty well upkept house. But every single one on our block's property value is significantly lower because one house on the block 
isn't it hasn't been maintained for 30 years like could we get could could you know could we band together and say hey this should be redone oh yeah they were thrilled to see that uh, the previous owner had finally passed away and that the, the there was a new owner and then they were uh, only this only this one particular neighbor uh, was disappointed with the, who i think is uh, fairly satisfied now that it's been uh, it's been upgraded new roof and so on yeah. but still we have to uh, examine the uh, extensive property rights that we have on uh, traditionally have in in neighborhoods you know and uh, the consequences that has gone on decade after decade in Portland and Seattle and other cities is that uh, the if the uh, single-family homeowner has not yielded any any territory on this and so while the population has grown and grown and grown uh, the auction system has pushed up the prices of the available housing because it hasn't there hasn't been adequate numbers of units and it has enriched the single family homeowner unjustly yeah i mean let me just one example i moved here in 2016 and i paid 125,000 for this house That's i spent $15,000 upgrading the the garage to live in and in the and the house and putting the two roofs on mm -hmm. so now zillow says that my house is worth $256,000 so that means that I've benefited two thousand dollars a month on uh, of appreciation, while other people don't even have a place to live, and they're displaced out into the streets. And they're coming here. They stole my bike. You know, the people come here who are in such distress that they, uh, you know, are stealing and and they're uh, using uh, drugs. And this is a this is a this is caused by society societal imp influences on them, a feeling of constantly being. Uh, oppressed and villainized and demonized by the population who who doesn't want to have uh, anything anything unsightly anything unpleasant you know outside of their doors as you say mm -hmm. and so that's but, if they don't but, want to have homeless outside of their door then what they have to do is uh, provide a way for people to live and then yeah. we don't have to sleep outside your door that's what i'm saying we should work toward that solution because i understand why people don't want homeless people sleeping outside their door but we should have a solution so that doesn't become a problem. I'm not saying we should demonize these people. I'm just saying, what's a solution? So here's my solution. For it, yeah. My solution is uh, what I would call um, selective concessions on the uh, uh, Chapter 4 and Chapter 9 of Eugene Code. And those selective um, concessions would allow people to live in an RV on the on the street, or I'm just picking that out of the air as one example. It would, And that's the, uh, the codes against camping. A person who is registered in the county database, applied for Section 8, applied for public housing, is qualified for public housing but are on a wait list, they should, they should be given a concession card that, okay, we know you're entitled to uh, public housing and that you are a genuine bona fide disaster case, and so you have a right to park your van on the street, you have a right to park in it in the backyard, and things that are not legal under the land use code which is uh, here. I'll just give you some examples. These are some things that uh, that uh, the city could they, that they could allow. You'd uh, want your street full of RVs? No, no. I, but as a uh, interim solution, rather than having people be literally freezing to death, you know, and, and that we. But who says they can afford an RV? RVs are expensive too. That's one of the uh, solutions. But these almost every homeless person, almost every one of them, is capable of getting up a tent and getting a platform under their tent. And then most of them are capable of building something like a tiny house. And they're called shanty towns. And, and that's what people do around. everywhere in the world. They build shanty towns, and the government doesn't come and tear it down. And so the people have somewhere to live. You know? Yeah. But we do have those here in Eugene. 
I see them. Like, if I'm on North Coast Expressway and stuff, like, they move around, but there's absolutely shanty towns. You mean uh, tent cities? Or, yeah. Or, well, oh, these are the homeless... homeless. Uh, yeah, shanty towns. Well, I, I would call them uh, homeless encampments if they're just uh, tents and so on. Uh, didn't you just say if you put up a bunch of tents with stuff underneath them, that's a shanty town? The uh, What I was referring to after that was sheds, buildings we know with uh, oh, tin. Okay. Like more, she- more permanent stuff. Sheets of tin over at the top. And, yeah, you know, all right. And so here's things that the uh, the city could the city could uh, allow cheaper housing types, and okay. this has already been well discussed at the housing tools and strategies and many other uh, official forums. All right, here, just in the last few years since I've been here, yeah. uh, allow two, three, and four plexes. House Bill two thousand and one, which passed in the last legislative session, uh, tells pro- prohibit cities from uh, having single um, family housing anymore, and so the city of Eugene is uh, opposing this and, and lobbying to to repeal it. But what if the city actually was proactively allowing fourplexes on single-family lots like this? Uh, then there would be there potentially four times as many housing units in the city, and that would definitely take care of the problem. Now, um, most of the city doesn't want Eugene to turn into another Southern California. Yeah. Let's get that out there. Eighty or ninety percent of Eugenians don't want more traffic, don't want ex- urban sprawl, yeah. and they don't want the Southern Willamette Valley to turn into Los Angeles Basin. And yeah. that is exactly what would happen if we didn't have growth management. Mm-hmm. And I'm also in favor of growth management. However, you have the problem of these t- these ten thousand people, and so this is a solution where if if you have an a, an identified population, they are in the database at the county, then if they if the county is not able to give them taxpayer-subsidized uh, housing, then they should have an exemption from these rules against fourplexes. Okay. So, some anybody who wants to build a fourplex, go build a fourplex, and then you you can only you can only rent it to people who have the exemption card because they're in a waiting line for public housing. Hmm. So this wouldn't cause a runaway, you know, like California. It wouldn't cause gentrification. It would not increase housing prices. It would actually reduce housing prices. Okay, a second thing, there's 25 things here on this list. I'll just run through. But it'd reduce housing prices because there's so many more houses here. And then, so so here's the thing. There's a bunch of single family housings and people, the the prices are going up too much because people want to move here. But then everyone who lives here says, oh, I want to stay in the town that I grew up in or that I moved to. But then if all the single family housings were moved to fourplexes, all of a sudden you're in a Southern California and say, well, I don't want to live here. So everyone wants to move away. And then, yeah, it's cheaper housing, but no one wants to live here. Or I mean, people obviously do. But the whole thing is like people who just literally want Eugene to stay Eugene as it is right now. There's no winning for them because either prices are going to go up if they want to stay a bunch of single housing or a bunch of fourplexes are going to get made. And then, yeah, it's cheaper housing, but then you're living in a city. The belt line's going to be crowded, all these things, you know? Well, you said a lot there. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, pretty much the way that the thing that I'm hearing from you is that people people want Eugene to stay similar with slightly like growing. But then. I mean, so one of the two solutions I see is either Eugene becomes a city with like a lot of housing or Eugene prices raise and it becomes more like. Uh, I, I think know. I think a good place to start on that would be to um, recognize the facts on the ground. And that is that uh, as long as we're as long as people are free to migrate around inside the United States. In fact, there's quite a bit of migration over the borders, but certainly the 350 million Americans migrate. That's a fact. And they're allowed to migrate here to Eugene. And um, a lot of people, uh, based on based on evidence, are moving here. And so that's just a fact. And uh, regardless of people's wishes that it would uh, would stay the same, 
people come here and they crowd in with their elbows and they buy a place and they bid up the, the prices of things mm -hmm. and they add to the traffic because they tend to be energizer bunnies and they drive all over the place and they add to the traffic and they're never happy you know there's more traffic after work hours than there is during work hours and their people are just restless and there's all this commotion well, doesn't that always make sense? Because if everyone's at work, who's driving? If everyone's like at their office or wherever people work, wouldn't there obviously be less traffic during work hours? And then after everyone's going home and going out to the bars and, you know, going to the movie theater, like it'd make more sense for there to be traffic outside of work hours. No, I don't agree. I think if, there, uh, if, a, if a society was actually well-adjusted and happy and healthy and spiritually, spiritually healthy, then there would be a, a great tendency for people to um, go from their place of work to their home, and then uh, more often than not, they, they would be happy in their homes. This but is that's you, just but my. What if you want to go to the beach n next weekend, and then you want to go out to watch, watch a movie? Like, mm -hmm. if you want to participate in society, you have to drive. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, many things in life, including our political um, our political views on housing, they actually uh, emanate out of our conception of what is a human being. Mm -hmm. And they and uh, for example, the prevalent uh, model in the media and, and press in the United States is that human beings are economic animals where everything, everything in life can be um, settled by just buying what you buy and sell. And if you want something different in your life, then you just have to uh, stop buying one thing and buy another or move to a different location and buy something different. But uh, that my conception of life is not materialistic. It is not... Uh, I think it's futile to try to buy more stuff and to uh, try to buy more sense pleasures and more experiences and vacations. That's futile and it doesn't bring happiness. And again, this is this a is, certain point. This is, my certain point. this is my conception of a human being, and it's at odds with much of the uh, prevalent, you know, uh, model of uh, what is a human being in this country. Yeah. And among the first decile are many people like me who are into sim simple living, and they are my people. And I don't want them to be displaced out of Eugene by the auction system. So returning to this problem of the, that we who live in Eugene would like it to stay the way it is, Eugene is not staying the way it is for me. My people are being displaced out of here. The hippies, the people in the Whitaker, the, the, the musicians and, and the poets, and many of the spiritual community, a lot of elders. Uh, there are so many people who are really vitally important um, intellectuals, authors, uh, who aren't in the money economy, they're being pushed out and we're getting instead a, a sterilized gentrification of people who just because they have money, they, they buy up all the, they buy up your city. I do want to stop on one of those points for a second. You mentioned musicians and I really got into thinking about it. I'm like, okay, what, what makes someone who wants to just do the only thing that they do with their life is make music. What makes it so they should have everything that someone who goes and works eight hours a day should have? And I'm like, okay, well, you should be enough that you bring a joy to a good number of people. So you should have a good enough audience, right? But like the way it is right now, even if you have a million people who listen to your music today, you still might have to worry about food and stuff. Like it's hard to become a musician. So a solution I see for that is something like Spotify. It costs, if it says, okay, $12 a month, $2 a month goes toward maintaining the site and stuff. That's understandable. But the other $10 a month, it gets you one dollar goes to the, the musicians you listen to the most so say you make music and i listen to you you're one of my top 10 musicians you get one of those dollars and then if thirty thousand people listen to you you have a you you know you, you have cool. you know so i'm like that'd be cool very cool i don't know i'm like it, whatever happens it needs to change because i think being a musician should be 
a feasible way of surviving. Um, so, yeah, I want to respond to that. Yeah. Uh, regardless of all the possibilities for musicians to make more money, that is a that is a uh, approach. It's a conceptual approach that is uh, very con congenial with American philosophy and materialism, and that is that. Uh, in fact, you see it at the city club. You see it at the uh, in other discussions of housing. Well, we have to do something to raise the income of the of the uh, unhoused, and uh, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the uh, the problem. First of all, the fact is they don't have money. Mm -hmm. There's this class of people the 20% living on less than $1,000 a month who don't have money, and that's a fact, and there's not going to be like an economic boom where they're said, where this class is going to shrink. This class is stable, and it's been growing, and it's going to continue to grow by all evidence. And so that is just a fact that is inescapable, and we shouldn't be distracted. So going back to your earlier point, well, you also mentioned that why should a person who only uh, does, you know, three or four or five gigs in, uh, a week, you know, uh, be entitled to have the same amount of housing? And I'm going to say, no, that's not what they're asking for. They're not asking for a three-bedroom house that costs $250,000. What they're asking for is the right to uh, occupy a, uh, a small accessory dwelling unit or a shed, a converted shed in the backyard of some house. What they're asking for is the right to park an RV in a driveway which is actually permitted in Eugene, but the, the, the gotcha is that the uh, owner of the, of the driveway can't charge rent. Now, how many driveways are you going to find where they're going to let somebody live in the driveway for free? Wait, they can charge rent. You said can't charge rent. The owner of the driveway can't charge rent. That's why there isn't an RV in every driveway paying rent. But if, if, uh, if, Eugene, if Eugene allowed people to charge rent for their driveway, then oh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of driveways would have an RV in them pretty quick. Do you think that'd be a good solution? Well, I mean, rent would be cheap. It, it, the reason why these regulations exist is because they are problematic for a lot of people. And so I'm not trying to turn the tide of, uh, of the entire NIMBY uh, attitudes of this uh, rather provincial small town, Eugene. Yeah. But what I am saying is you've got a problem of 10,000 people who are in complete distress and they're getting, they're getting displaced out of their housing. And so you should give them a selective window just for those people. They should be able to take that exemption card mm -hmm. that I mentioned earlier. They qualify for public housing. Everybody knows they have a problem. Everybody knows that they need housing. It might be a disabled person or an older person or whatever, a single mother. Everybody knows they need public housing. Everybody knows there's never going to be enough public housing. So yeah. give them a get-out-of-jail-free card mm -hmm. and let them have the privilege of, uh, of paying rent for, for an RV in a driveway or some of these other solutions, which I could run through. You said anytime. there will never be enough housing. I heard a statistic. It could not be true, though, but there's more vacant houses than there are homeless people. Is that not true? Well, that's true, but the, the, the cost of those places, and rightly so, is hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's a real huge job and a real huge pain in the you-know-what to build houses. Construction, but there is enough housing Construction is a lot of work, and oh, the yeah. materials are a lot of work, and the digging and the concrete. And so, you know, I'm not asking for, for, the, for society to give housing to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, uh, the people who argue for housing as a human right... Mm -hmm. I argue that. Well, it, the problem with housing being a human right means that uh, s some carpenters has to build them a house. Yep. And so then what about the, the carpenter's right to not have somebody, just because he's a carpenter, you know? But have, he's still getting paid from tax money. So that's basically what universal basic income is. And my tweak on its universal basic needs met. So your housing, food, water, um, and stuff is, is allotted for, you don't have to worry about it. And then it's like, okay, well, I'm a carpenter. I just built a house, but you're getting paid from all our tax money. Um, why oh, would yeah, I... So you're just arguing for public housing, yeah. taxpayer funded housing, but well, like, lots of like no homeless people, because here's the thing. I built a house 
and I got paid for from the government money. And then it's like, okay, now there's no homeless people on the street. So, and, and everyone, no one has to worry about food and, and housing. Okay. Well, I don't even have to lock my car because yeah, there's not people think, needing to steal. Yep. Yep. You've gone back to the $4 billion from this, from the city of Eugene. There's 200,000 people living in Eugene and they're not going to pay $4 billion to build houses, to build houses for, for indigent people. They're never going to do that. So forget about the public housing solution. Public housing is going to be a small, but there's it, already enough houses. We just, we just said that in the whole country. There's more ho- there's more vacant houses than there are homeless people. Mm-hmm. Let those homeless people go live in those in the in the houses that are vacant, and just subsidize it with government money. So then people don't have to worry about people robbing and stealing and murdering well, just to just to yeah, have a place to house their kids. Economics 101, and uh, without talking about all the other regions of the country, some of which are cheaper. But all, all the viable economies of this of the country have pretty expensive housing now. You know, you go to Austin or you go to Denver, you go to, you know, Lansing, Michigan. I don't care. They viable are, economies. What do you mean by viable economies? I think every, because of the, the digital nomads and stuff, like everywhere's a digital or a viable economy if, you're, if you do anything that's like internet based. Well, this is true. That's, but there are places where housing is quite cheap. Yeah. I'm not going to say that those are non-viable economies. I'm just going to say that there are places where housing is cheap. Yes. But I'm not going to be distracted by all these other places in the country. We have a problem right here in Eugene, Oregon. Yes. And that is 10,000 people who are in distress, and uh, the government has no answer. And neither do any of the larger housing lobby groups, such as Better Homes Together. They uh, They lobby very effectively for relaxing the restrictions on density in uh, in Eugene so that more you know condominiums and apartments can be built mm-hmm. which would be fine i'm not i'm not opposed to their project however they have no solution for people who can only afford 200 a month mm-hmm. and uh, so what i'm i'm offering the only solution on the table that scales to 10,000 people that they can pay that they can live on 200 a month and that is relax the freaking restrictions let people build simpler ADUs. Let people live in their uh, trailers. And I know that the environmentalists don't like trailers because they have poor insulation and so on. But uh, hmm. there's... I've never heard that, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the problems. You know what? I mean, that's, that's a super reasonable solution is just to just chillax on all those things. But here's the thing. I want to go live in Hawaii. I don't have enough money to go live in Hawaii. Should I move there and then just be homeless and then be like, well, this is everyone else's problem because I want to live here. It's like, like, I mean, if right now I'm not really making enough money to live in Eugene, like I luckily have um, people who are housing me, but like, should I, if I can't afford to live here, should I just live here or should I move to a cheaper place in the country? So you're implying that a lot of the homeless people here are from somewhere else, but that is actually a canard. It's very common on right-wing talk radio. Uh, The people are, um, actually Eugene is generating more homeless population per capita than most mm-hmm. cities. And in fact, when you look at the effect, this just came up uh, last week at a housing conference I was at. Uh, the homeless in Eugene are from Eugene. Yeah. They're from Eugene and Springfield. And while you're at it, here's another, fa- here's another uh, uh, statistic. 17,000 people, according to the Bureau of the Census, 17,000, which is just under 10% of the population, weren't here a year ago. They were not in Eugene or Lane County a year ago. They're from somewhere else. And so who the heck are these people? Because uh, our net population growth is about 2,000 a year, something well, like that. Well, wouldn't it have just been 16,000? Wouldn't it have been, if, if 17,000 or 17,000 people are here that weren't here last year, then it's not 2,000, it's 17,000. No. 15,000 of them left. Oh. And it whoa. wasn't them who left. It was somebody 
we know that 17,000 newbies came. Mm-hmm. And we know that our net population growth is only around 2,000, 2,500. Huh. And so what this means is that 15,000 people went. Mm-hmm. Now, guess who, guess who went? The lower-income people yes. who couldn't make it. And the ones who came with the checkbook, among them are the people who are buying our housing mm-hmm. and who are making this a strong housing market and making it possible for landlords to, re- to charge unbelievable amounts of rent. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of churn going on, and it's not really not really well recognized by policymakers. Well, and uh, they have, they're not really they're not really many policymakers aren't mathematically inclined to think in, in terms of abstract uh, classes or dimensionality within a within a population. I think you're using the lifeboat thing where it's like, oh, well, I was born here, so I deserve to be here. We live in one of the best places in the entire world in terms of our quality of life. We don't have to worry about natural disasters, all these different things. And then you're saying, I should get to live, because I was born here, I should be able to live in the nicest place, one of the nicest places in the world for $200 a month. What about all those other people who have to pay more than that to live in not a nice of a place? Like, I I think it's understandable that the nicer places in the world are more difficult like i mean i i I understand what you're talking about like that just plays into the money economy of it all um but what gives you the right to live here over someone else who has worked really hard to move somewhere nice and then they can't move here because you're paying 200 dollars a month when they they're like i worked my entire life to move out of nevada i want to move to oregon but oh i can't you know like Ultimately, I think the logic, and I agree with your logic, and uh, ultimately it uh, argues in favor of open borders, including uh, with Mexico. Yes. And I actually support that. I support, and the European Union, of course, has been working for softening of borders, not hardening their borders for many, since World War II. You know, they've been through wars. Didn't and they just harden their borders with the trains and stuff? Like it's hard, uh, because of terrorism, they made it like harder to go between. Well, there has been a, a, a rollback of, of some of these aspects of having open borders. But within the European Union, yeah. there, there isn't any rollback of, uh, of their, uh, their conception of uh, labor mobility and, and population being able to flow freely. And they still have a single currency. And it's basically, uh, as mu- you know, they're working towards having a single economic system that, so that it won't have the uh, possibility of another European war, yeah. among other uh, important goals. H- human, uh, the the uh, well-being of human populations pretty oh, much requires that they be able to move around. and you Absolutely. Know. But here's the thing about that. So it's like, okay, we open the border with Mexico. Um, whatever fear-mongering makes you think happens, happens. The solution to that is make Mexico a better place. Increase the quality of life in Mexico so people don't want to leave there. That's the solution to, to whatever people perceive as uh, immigrants coming here or unskilled workers uh, migrating here. Make it mm-hmm. better where they're living. It seems like it'd be worth mm-hmm. our money to invest in their economy to lift them up. You know, That's how money should be spent, not preventing people from leaving a bad place. Use that exact money making the place better so they don't want to leave. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, that's been talked about all my life. I grew up in Arizona. And um, I'll tell you what my honest reaction is. When I hear people, uh, if you talk about open borders, and then the next thing that they talk about is uh, what I would call a uh, psychological uh, uh, deflection or a, a displacement of their concern, because as soon as you say open borders of Mexico, most white people, we we most white people have implicit bias, and that's another fancy word for um, unrecognized racist um, tendencies and tribalism. I mean, this is not only white people. Everyone. So, but what what it comes to mind is, 
the idea of having open borders really really bugs most white people. Uh, and so as, and so what happens is that they come up with uh, different uh, you, you know uh, you know thoughts and solutions like uh, making Mexico better uh, because that allows them to be comfortable in their and uh, in, in maintaining strong borders. Mm-hmm. Because at the bad, at the end of the day, they still want to maintain strong borders, but they want to regard themselves as um, as a uh, moral person, and uh, and so they want to help Mexico. The biggest argument I'd see against that is if your government's spending money helping people in Mexico, you'd be like, my, you know, I can barely, you know, I can barely afford food this month. Why don't you spend that money helping us? I think I see that as the biggest argument against exactly, exactly. Helping. So easily you end up with the uh, typical Republican uh, platform where nobody agrees to spend any money on anything. Nobody cares about Mexico, and all they do is end up just saying, "Oh, let's just strengthen the wall and just go back to sleep." And uh, so I don't, I don't want to talk about uh, the ultimate um, uh, logical. Uh, conclusion. conclusion you're thinking about so the marginal you, stuff because you, you were you originated originally argued um, about the problem of people uh, not being able to move here yeah and they have a right to be here just like anybody else well tell that to the nimbies you know because what you're saying is people ought to be able to ought to be able to move here and there ought to be housing for them and why should a person who just because they're a native uh, you know well you I agree. But that, I agree, agree. that agrees not just for, for poorer people moving here, but richer people should be able to move here. Like, it seems like it's not like people just want poor people. If there was like a place in uh, wherever, someplace in Africa, um, and a bunch of rich people moved there and like kicked them all out, they would want not, they would also want other people to not move there. Like, we don't, mm-hmm. no one wants anyone else to move to their place. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, this really is an academic question to. because uh, 80% or 90% of Eugenians do not want. More population growth, more traffic. Whether it's rich or people. Doesn't matter who you are, left, right, or in between, young or old. Nobody wants the uh, southern Willamette Valley to turn into another Los Angeles. Yeah, that's totally understandable. And I don't either, so let's just turn the page. Well, I mean, do you think it's going... I mean, I think it's almost inevitability as soon as... I think, if anything... You know, here's the thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm currently living with my parents out on Fern Ridge. So I say, oh man, we should allow the city to expand. But then all of a sudden, the house that we're at would become part of the city, which isn't, you know, obviously the the point. Like no one wants that, you know. I don't know. Should should they just let them build higher places, like right in the middle of the city? Should there just be twenty feet foot high skyscrapers? That would help out a lot. Well, the trouble with with skyscraper with you know with the apartment buildings more than three stories high is the cost per unit isn't cheap, mm. and uh, I really am not sympathetic to building good apartments, such as the Bennett development on 11th, which just received a uh, its approval for a MUPTI grant from the taxpayers. Uh, and this is a, a six or eight story um, concrete, large concrete apartment building for, uh, you know, the 2000 a month or whatever it's going to rent for. And uh, I don't care if that never got built. I don't need that building. And I don't need the kind of people who can afford to 2000 a month. I don't, I don't dislike them personally. It's nothing personal. But until we house the people who already live here and who are the historical cultural legacy of Eugene, it resides in the low-income brackets. It does not reside in the professional class over at the university or in the political class. Or but I was the, talking to you the other day. You said you like uh, the intellectual space that the UO brings in. Yeah, the professors never never speak in public fora. Yeah, that is a problem. That should there, be a bigger thing. Like it's a, it's a research institution, isn't it? It's not a repository of, of uh, cultural values, as far as I can see, that are valuable to me. The 
cultural wisdom and values of a society are contained in the in the uh, minds and in the uh, products you know the uh, music and, and artistic products of lower in of people who happen to have lower income because you cannot make money you cannot make money producing a true uh, cultural product you know ex- with rare exceptions you don't think phones iPhones are cultural products they're they're a cultural product they're they're a creation of a creative mind made here that it's improving the lives of people and that made money you know I'd argue that I like a phone helps improve the lives of more people than a, a song does I don't regard the uh, technical infrastructure uh, as being the cultural content itself and it shouldn't be confused and a good example is um, if you go and build a, uh, a mega church and then you have a commercially operated uh, pastor who's motivated to make millions of dollars and the uh, message is carried in the in the church is uh, only to I don't know I'm getting I'm getting into the weeds here the physical wires and infrastructure of the internet and its content are not a cultural product that's your opinion man I think it's that's your that's just your opinion man uh, I think it's a created thing that changes the lives of people I mean I don't know how you'd argue that something like music or writing is a creative endeavor that increases culture but something like a technological invention like tinder didn't affect culture just as much if not oh, more it absolutely affected culture but only because of the content in the uh, in, in tinder or in you know facebook facebook or, or whatever or, or whatever yeah, the your content phone is. is the cultural content it's not the uh, not the bits and, ch- and the chips okay so if no one ever invented a guitar or a way to record music you know yeah like we would have never been able to hear Jimi hendrix or any of those people who who are some of the foundation of our culture so i think the the the, the technology i think is one of the the pinnacles of culture because it allows culture to propagate like i mean if what if the writing press was never made what if infinite and so many inventions going all the way back were never made culture could have never had a foundation and been able to progress i think technology is the ultimate culture yeah i think we're, we're on the same the same page on that it's a it's a tremendous uh, and i argue that myself Few people recognize the importance of uh, the discussions on Facebook, and you read constant uh, criticisms of, of uh, social media that they're uh, degenerating the, the culture. And actually, the opposite is true. There's a tremendous amount of thought and uh, and um, interaction on Twitter and Facebook that's have greatly improved our country. Yeah, but I mean, the whole thing is that the algorithms currently don't want that. The algorithms literally make you argue with people. They want whatever steals your attention. That that's the whole. Uh, time well spent program from the ethicist of Google, uh, Tristan Harris. He's like, it's not time well spent for most people on social media. Like you can curate it really well. Like your Facebook feed might just be things you're interested in, but a lot of people's Facebook feeds are just things that are designed to keep them. They're like engaged, which tends to be mm-hmm. clickbaity, mm-hmm. argumentative stuff. Like if if I posted this video with uh, Todd Boyle is uh, pro is against homeless people or something. That would immediately have someone, oh my God, what a horrible person. Then someone else would be like, oh, he doesn't actually think that if you listen to it. And then that's engagement. That's what social media is curated for is argument. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know that it benefits society, but I do think it's impacts society in, I don't know what culture means. I don't know what the definition of culture is, but I think technology is definitely cultural Mm. whatever it is. I mean, if you think of what is the culture of America, it's technology. You know? Well, you said a lot there. <laughs> I tend to just ramble on for a minute. 
like if you were to like look at all the societies like oh rome uh whatever they're good for uh irrigation and stuff and then you look at mm -hmm. you know oh these people are good stonemasons they're good at building architecture it's like what is america good at it's like oh technology which is the the biggest trip you know okay hey, back back to housing <laughs> um mm -hmm. okay. bring this um, all back yeah just one pot shot at the uh, at the algorithms absolutely the uh, it is it's unjust and it's quite unwise for the country to allow uh facebook to um operate an algorithm that selects our, the distribution of content, okay, uh, without without disclosing how it works. Oh yeah. And so we we should have uh, we need federal legislation urgently to f to require any social media uh, platform having more than you know 100,000 users that it must uh, disclose its uh, its um, algorithm for selecting its feed, and also uh, to allow. Um, the users to make uh, their own choices in the in the selection of the feed. That's just as important. It would be it would be uh, pointless if we knew the how the algorithm works, but we still wouldn't be able to set a filter. Like mm -hmm. I would like to set a filter. I never want to see the word Trump. Uh, anything that has to do with the federal government or the presidency. That is such the wrong opinion. You don't want to see the word Trump. I was thinking of de designing a device that you hook up to your Twitter and Facebook and it says, you're, you're, you're getting propaganda from here on the political sphere. And so if it's super far left wing, it'd be like, all right, here's some decent right wing things um, that you could follow to see their point of view. I think if you shut off the point of the view of others, you well, get more entrenched in your Well, views. you're missing my point entirely. Okay. All right, give me, You're give totally me. missing my point. I said that I want to have the uh, uh, choice over what I get in my feed. And you said that you want to cram down a feed that you think would be wise, but I don't agree with you on that. Yeah. I don't agree with that at all. Well, saying you so okay, I don't want to hear the word. You're trying to fix the feed, and I'm trying to let the feed be chosen by the by the listener. Yeah. Oh, okay, I think that's a good point. But I'm I'm saying like in your example, if you said I don't want to see the word Trump in your feed, that would I view I think that would hurt the the cultural discussion. If a bunch of people on the left said I don't ever want to hear the word Trump. Think of all the things that they would miss. They'd miss the bad things Trump's that are doing. That's like, okay, well, I need to be upset mm -hmm. about that and fight against but that. But anyway, like, you don't need to be defensive. Just pass on, pass on that. Yeah, but but anyways. So what are the two points? They should be required to disclose the algorithm, yeah. and they should be required to give users choice over the algorithm. But it would let people game the algorithm. If, if I knew the algorithm, if, if, I mean, if I knew the algorithm, I obviously wouldn't be able to do much with it. But if a millionaire, billionaire politician knew the algorithm, they could be like, all right, I'm going to hire a whole warehouse of people to game it to make sure that I show up first on everything. No, 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 no. This would remove the power of the platform to cram down content to you. Mm. What, that's what it has now. It has the power to cram down content to you. Kind of. You can unfollow anyone you know, who's cramming down content. Yeah, you, can, you have limited ability, but it's really illusory because the uh, overall character of the thing is, uh, is crammed down. It is a little bit, yeah. Sometimes I'll get people on my Twitter feed that. So why I don't can't follow. I set a filter? Is that too much to ask? And why don't why doesn't Facebook down there in Palo Alto or wherever they are? Why don't they? This is not a new idea that we should have a filter. I have filters on my email. Why can't I fill? And so they say, oh, we'll give you a filter. You can unfriend people. No, I'm talking about content filters. I'm not talking about filtering. That's interesting. People. I don't want to see anything political. And it's blocked. That should be somebody. If someone's right, if all they want to talk about is knitting then they should be able to set a filter. I want to see everything about knitting in the United States and nothing else. I think if you made a social media profile and you just followed knitting profiles, I think that is all that you'd see. Uh -huh. I think if the person secretly is political and they'd follow a couple political pages, then they would get bombarded. Mm -hmm. I, I bet that if you followed just knitting things, I bet your feed would be just filled with them. Okay, tell you what. Disclose the algorithm, and then we'll have another interview. <laughs> because that's not how they're... Anyway, so we wanted to get back to housing. Yeah. 
So what needs to happen for many thousands of people that can't possibly be built by the uh, public housing industrial complex because of their costs is that we have to let people live in cheaper accommodations without persecuting them and making all their accommodations illegal and coming in and tearing down their accommodations that they built for themselves. Yeah. And so right, right over here on the corner is the Nightingale camp. With the, It has 20 Conestoga huts. And uh, they're not allowed to, to build tough sheds because of an arbitrary decision by the city manager and, and the bureaucracy of the city uh, that this is the, the most they're going to let them have is a Conestoga hut. And why can't they have a... T in Seattle and other large cities, there's tiny house villages that are built and operated by the city, and they have insulated tough sheds with, uh, with electricity so that they don't get um, mold and mildew and become unhealthy. Uh, they tried un uninsulated tough sheds. There's a tiny house village on Railroad Ave, isn't there? Yeah, that's the Emerald Village you're talking about? Um, I believe uh, so. Emerald Village is the... Yeah, they have, they're having an open house today or sometime real soon. Nice. But, but those just... came in, you know, they came in at sixty or seventy thousand per unit, depending on how you uh, count. And the newspaper said it was ninety-seven thousand dollars per unit. And to get down to two hundred dollars a month, you know, a hundred thousand dollar tiny house or ADU is is going to have to have five hundred dollars a month rent to pay for its mortgage. That's crazy. And so we're this this won't. Uh, there's no real way to levitate. Uh, I'm looking for solutions that don't require taxpayer subsidy. Because the it's the taxpayers are never going to build ten thousand units of uh, of affordable housing for for uh, for the lowest income people, and so here's a way that they can house themselves. Just let them house themselves. Let them build their shed. Let them build it. Let them buy a tough shed out at Lowe's for for eight thousand dollars and and plunk it in a backyard anywhere they want and uh, live in it for, for as long as they want until they get public housing. And cool. if they, if since we know that you know, eighty percent of the people who are entitled to public housing aren't getting it, then uh, let's give them an exemption card to take out there and go on down to Lowe's and buy yourself a tough shed for eight thousand dollars. Would that a lot make uh, homeowners be able to like? Could you could you give someone okay? It's like a hundred dollars a month to to put your shed up in your yard, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. so there'd be three or four tough sheds in some people's yards because they need more money. Yeah. Huh. I almost then, think that would just bring more money into people who already have money and can buy a house. Now they get $500 a month for renting out five tough sheds. Yeah, this is a well-discussed argument in the first SIL housing Facebook group mm. in which uh, several people, including Randy Prince and Cliff Gray, uh, believe that deregulating structures like that would cause property prices to go up even more yeah. and it would, it would accelerate um, gentrification. I don't agree. Mm. I don't agree. But... Um, I mean, show me the proof. But anyways, this program for the for the exemption card would necessarily have to have two other components. The places that they rent shouldn't be allowed to be flipped or sold or rented at higher prices or even at market prices. The, this this concession to uh, to low income people to that they would be allowed to let's say rent a driveway. There there should be a cap on it of like what say a hundred a month. So that it doesn't turn into a, a big business, and everybody in town is all of a sudden doing Airbnbs for uh, <laughs> you know hundred thousand dollar RVs coming from all over the country, you know, yeah. and charging three hundred a month. And this is exactly why we have these regulations. Mm -hmm. So we're going to tear down. Another thing you could do is stop requiring people who have a, who have a, a place to live to have a driveway. 
Why do we want to require people to have cars when we everybody doesn't want cars? We have to stop Good requiring point. driveways and, and uh, as far as parking on the street. Well, that's a really good idea. As far as uh, the resulting impact on the street, nobody oh, yeah. owns would, the street. I would add so much room. Nobody owns the street, and the people in the neighborhood who are concerned about parking, they don't have any right to complain about housing uh, or parking on the street. That'd be so nuts. I've never thought about what a house would even look like if it didn't have a driveway. But we totally have. I mean, you could just have a little bike driveway for a, yeah, or a walking I, driveway for a lot of people. I, I never even considered that. That's a really good idea. I'm 67, and I haven't driven in my whole entire life. And I've so enriched myself by the money that I've saved nice. by not driving. I mean, I have a van, but I... I, I I haven't never put on my stickers from last year. I don't even drive the thing. <laughs> I just use it if I have to haul uh, uh, lumber or something. So another thing, you, the city needs to let people partition our lots. You know, like I bought this house for one hundred twenty-five thousand. Yeah. It has seven thousand square feet. It could be subdivided into seven one thousand square foot lots. Mm -hmm. And uh, a tiny house, by the way, is typically uh, eight by twenty. That'd be a typical uh, tiny house, and uh, that's one hundred sixty square feet. And I've talked to many tiny house occupants and builders who would be thrilled, and they regard 1,000 square feet as a very adequate parking space for their tiny house. Hmm. And this obviously, this lot obviously has space for seven tiny houses. It's called cluster housing. And uh, if and if the city would allow uh, groups of people to buy a property and subdivide it to, to 1,000 square foot lots, mm -hmm. then very quickly they could house themselves. At uh, how much would that, that you you know your tiny houses cost fifteen thousand dollars to build? I've documented many of these around the neighborhood and up in the McKinsey uh, that are built for fifteen thousand dollars with electricity generally and with water uh, and not always with a toilet. But um, that would be fifteen thousand for your uh, tiny house and about twenty or thirty thousand for your share of the land. So you're under fifty thousand. You own your place and uh, your mortgage is three hundred dollars a month. That would be nice, but I mean, let's go let's go down the road if, if things keep getting so people live in smaller and smaller things. Have you heard of the the things that people are living in in China where it's almost like a like a, a small little like they'll live in like literally like a closet kind of area like that can just fit a bed and then on top like a could you know, so like if you just keep taking this further where it's like okay and then Eugene is full of these one thousand foot lots and then people are like okay well now we still have homeless people because it's still going to be a problem even with this more people are like these are never end game solutions so then it's like okay then we have more people and it's like okay well i should be able to split my tiny house into two houses you know and it's like yeah we don't have la but we have our version of la which well look let's take a deep breath this is this is a city of two hundred thousand people and there's so much land around here you can see it from space oh yeah you jump on google earth and you can just see nothing but land and it's absolutely bizarre to have a housing bubble in a place like this. Good point. And uh, so we're not going to have... Uh, I lived in Tokyo for 14 years, and there's a lot of really small places there. Uh, they're called a Roku Joheya. Uh, people live in a six tatami uh, a rental unit, and a tatami is something like uh, uh, one meter by two meters, more mm -hmm. or less. So uh, a six tatami room is like nine by 12 or something. And that's a rental apartment. Or that's a studio apartment in, in Tokyo. Um, but that being said... Average housing prices, or housing sizes are are pretty, pretty decent in Tokyo. The big, right after World War II, they built a lot of really extremely small places out of necessity because the whole country had been burned down. So, uh, the our values projection on the homeless population, or the, let's say that what I would say the low income population, the uh, Oregon Country Fair set, the musicians and hippies and people who like gardening. 
elders who are uh, retired. There's all these 20 or 30,000 people. And uh, it is a projection by the business community who runs Eugene. It's their psychological projection that that it's that it would be good if everybody had a big, uh, you know, single-family house, or that if everybody had a, a fully decked-out two-bedroom apartment. That's their conception of housing, and they're just immovable on this. That you know we're going to have quality housing for all Americans, but that is a projection, and actually doesn't doesn't uh, jive with the values of the lower-income people. You know, they are not asking for a, a house; they're asking for a way to live. And, and uh, without being desperately thrown out into the street by rents of four or five, six hundred, you know, you can't even rent a room in Eugene anymore for less than five or six hundred a month. Oh, it's, it's nuts. It's going crazy. Me and, uh, me and Kenzie tried looking for to move out, and it's like a it's borderline a thousand dollars a month <clears throat> if you really want to move most places, like halfway in the city, or like it. And a thousand dollars a month to survive is absurd. That's like pretty much not even including like phone bill car insurance gas or any of that um that's absurd and so you're you become an indentured servant to the uh, economy because you have to make so much money that you're paying 30 and 40 and 50 percent of your income just for rent yeah and uh, so i'm saying look deregulate it and let me build my own uh, tiny house and this yeah, is that's <laughs> a good point no it's, it's, it, uh, you know what? i i agree that is a pretty good solution that we should we should we should work towards so you're just trying to try to get people to like pitch it to Oregon, how, how can people help if he, people listen to this and say, fuck, I want to help this guy's process? Well, you can remove restrictions on alleys, for example. There's alleys all up and down the city. But who's you? Who would people go talk to to get this started? Oh, you have to go to the city council. Or could you email someone? Do you know the person to email? And be like, hey. Go to the city council website and there are links for each of your city council, whatever part of town that you're in. Mm-hmm. And you can send them a message and say, hey, I want to uh, be able to live in a tiny house. Or whatever yeah. you're, uh, you know, you're... I mean, 200 people sent her an email or him an email within a week. They'd be like, all right, okay, I get it. I get it. And really, I mean, there's 10,000 people. Like, I guess that it's hard for them to send emails unless they went to like the library or something. But like... And I mean, sadly, two of the two of the uh, tiny houses that I investigated, one is right down the alley here, mm-hmm. uh, has no place to go because, you know, this after you build it, then they realize, oh my God, I got a tiny house and now all I got to do is find a place to park it. Well, lots of luck. You know, yeah. there's a, there's Facebook groups where you can discuss this. There's a tiny house, tiny village Facebook group. Hmm. And the other guy uh, got ticketed and had to tow it all way out to some storage place. And he can't even get there to work on it. He doesn't have any place to put it. That's messed up. Let's take let's take it back a second and show how it wouldn't work. Imagine if uh, the girl in charge of Eugene Housing just said, huh, I just got 200 emails yesterday about tiny housing. I'm going to put a block on receiving tiny any tiny housing thing in my social media or f- email. Do you see how that ruins the conversation? Oh, well. Like, you should be able to be bombarded by shit. If people want to shove something down your throat, I'm sure there's a reason. Well, anyway, housing policy is made by a great big contentious and, and controversial um, collection of uh, competing, you know, uh, viewpoints. Yeah. And uh, so there's the, the planning commission is a good place to, for people to attend, to get up to speed on the kind of uh, uh, issues that are in the code and should be in the code or shouldn't. Um, the housing policy uh, board, it meets monthly. And I've been videoing that and putting it on YouTube for seven months. Very informative, very, very much uh, information there. Housing policy board. Of, cool. Uh, it's an intergovernmental policy board in Lane County, and the uh, that isn't what I went to yesterday, was it? The, yesterday was the poverty and homelessness board executive committee, and that was just the executive committee. The full uh, meeting is uh, in the Baskin Tyson room. It's even bigger, hmm. uh, so that's another good place to learn about. Uh, but they they talk about uh, 
probably housing more than anything else, but also about poverty. Yeah. So, um, I got some people coming on the show to talk about it that I met at the meeting. So I'm looking forward. We just did an hour and 10 minutes. I uh, appreciate your time, man. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, this is great. Thanks for listening. Yep. Bye.